0: Thank you for being here in worship, and if you are in our overflow room or if you're watching us online right now, we want to say welcome as well. And I know it seemed like I was hazing a younger staff member by making him read that very difficult passage. Um, it's not true. Uh, however, I know that was traumatic for him, uh, but he is he is young, and he will probably recover before his ministry ends, uh, and he retires one day from that. Uh, We'll get into that in in that particular passage in just a minute. So several years ago, our uh, family decided to uh, make a trip to Disney World. Our two oldest kids were about six, seven, eight years old, and it was something that we had put off for a number of years. Just honestly, the thought of going to Disney World with a couple of young kids seemed exhausting to us. And so we had held off and held off, but there was all this pressure to take our kids to Disney World. Some of you parents may have experienced this before. You know, people would say, well, look how old they are. They've not been to Disney yet, you know? And we just had this image of them sitting on the couch in a counselor's office one day saying, you know, the reason I'm this way is my parents never took us to Disney World. And so finally... We bit the bullet, and we made reservations to go to Disney World. And my job was to book the hotel and to buy the tickets to Disney World. Katie's job was to make our itinerary for the week. And here's what you have to understand. My wife is normally not an itinerary kind of person. Um, Our normal vacation is to go to the beach, and the itinerary is get up when you feel like it. Get something to eat when you feel like it. We'll go to the beach when we feel like it. We'll stay as long as we feel like it. We'll come back and we'll debate for an hour what we want to do for dinner. And we'll finally eat dinner and then we'll watch a movie. We'll just take each day as it comes. There's no itinerary. There's no detailed plan for the week. Here's what I learned. Beach Katie is much different from Disney Katie. She spent hours online researching Disney and how best to do Disney. And by the time we were ready to leave, she had a detailed battle plan for the week. I'm telling you, it was a battle plan that would have made George Patton himself drool on how to attack Disney. I mean, it's like we were rolling into Orlando in an M1 tank ready to take on the week. I mean, we had it down to every minute, here's what we're going to do, and here's where we will eat, and these are the shows that we will watch, and the, the first few rides of the day, they're planned out, and here's what we will do, and this is when we'll meet the characters, and we had a very specific plan. Day one, it was Magic Kingdom. Day two, it was Hollywood Studios. Day three, it was Animal Kingdom. And day four, it was Epcot. The plan for Epcot was in the morning, we do the rides. Then we have a late lunch at Norway, which is in the World Showcase portion of Epcot. And then after that late lunch, we would continue around the lake, going to all the different countries featured at Epcot. The plan went exactly how she had sketched it out. We did the rides. Stopped for the late lunch at, at Norway, met the characters, got the pictures with the characters. Then we continued around, visiting all the different countries. We got somewhere around the United Kingdom, which is towards the end, and the troops rebelled. <laughs> We're tired. We're tired of walking. We're tired of the schedule, the detailed plan. We just need a break. And it turns out General Cady needed a break, too. And so she said, hey, look, let's, let's just rest for a minute. There was an ice cream kiosk located right there. So we grabbed some ice creams and we went over to this bench right in this little niche, kind of out of the way of the flow of traffic. And we sat on the bench and we ate ice cream. Our son, Ryan, who was around six years old at the time, ate his ice cream, and because he's six at the time, he had plenty of energy. He decided to get up and kind of wander around a little bit. He went over to the fence surrounding the lake that's right in the middle of the World Showcase. It was a wrought iron-looking fence kind of structure there, and he wanted to see and look at the lake and see beyond the lake. And so he, because he was small, decided to sort of start climbing the fence, There was a horizontal bar there, he put his foot on the bar, he put his other foot, he climbed up, he reached up, he started to climb the fence, and when he was climbing the fence, Katie yelled out to him, you'd better get down, you're going to get in trouble. The moment she said that, the principal and vice principal of his school here in Macon, who are friends, walked up. She said, see, you never know who's watching you. (laughs) You're going to get in trouble. Well, we introduced introduced ourselves, talked to them for a moment. We went our separate ways. I'm sure they walked off and thought, we can't even go on vacation in another state, you know, to get away from the kids at our school. The moment they walked away, our kids started peppering us with questions. How did you plan that? (laughs) I mean, the, the whole week was planned. How did you do that? Did you call them before we left? Did you know they were going to be at Disney World? Did you tell them what day we were going to be at Epcot? Did they plan to be there at the same day? Did you tell them what time we would get to the United Kingdom? And wait a second, the whole ice cream thing, that was just sort of spur of the moment, or was it? You know, how did you do all of that? And then how did you know that Ryan would climb the fence and start looking out on the lake? Like, Mama, what kind of magic powers do you have here? How did you do that? We said, we didn't. They just happened to walk up. Oh, no, no, no. That's that's impossible. We had to explain to them the difference between impossible and improbable. It was improbable that they would walk up at that time. It was not impossible. Impossible would have been if Ryan started to climb the fence and his great-great-grandfather, who's been dead for decades, walked up. That would have been impossible. Impossible. Or if he had climbed the fence and somehow entered into this alternate dimension, you know, some other reality and then was just gone, that would have been impossible. It was improbable. It was coincidental, but it was not impossible. Here's why I bring all of this up. Too often we limit God to the improbable or the coincidental, but we do not believe that God is the God of the impossible. We're continuing our series called Rule Number One, and that is our truth for the day that God is the God of the impossible. And before we get into the passage, let me give you just a couple of texts from the New New Testament that will sort of serve as foundational for this particular truth. The first one comes from Luke's gospel. This is Luke's story of the birth of Jesus. And in Luke's story, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, who is not married, who is still a virgin, and says, you will have a son, and this son will actually be the son of God, the son of the Most High. And she says, hey, wait a second. I've never been with a man. I'm not married. How can this be? And the angel Gabriel says, it will happen just as I have described for... Nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Another passage comes from Matthew. And this is the account of a young man coming up to Jesus. Matthew says this young man was very wealthy. He approaches Jesus and he asks Jesus the most important question that anyone can ever ask. He says, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? What do I have to do to know that I will have eternal life. And Jesus, without getting into all the details, looks at this man and understands that his God is his money, that he's very wealthy, and that has become his little G God. And so Jesus looks at this man and says, here's what you need to do to be saved. Here's what you need to do to know that you can have eternal life. Get rid of your God, your little G God. Give away your wealth to the poor. Then come and follow me and you will have eternal life. And the Bible says this, this young, rich man walks away. But not just that he walks away. It says he walked away sad because he had great wealth. In other words, he gave up the joy of following Christ for the sadness of his wealth. And as he walks away, Jesus just shakes his head and says, see how hard it is? For someone who is trapped by their money to follow me? And in fact, Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples watch this unfold. They hear Jesus say this, and here's their reaction. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In other words, none of us can come to God on our own because we all have little g-gods. It might be wealth, like the young man in the story. It might be sin. It might be selfishness. It might be pride. We are all chained. We are all tethered to these little g-gods and on our own, it is impossible For us to be saved, to find eternal life. But with God, all things are possible. So here's the question I want us to ask this morning. The New Testament is very clear. Throughout the Bible, it's very clear that God is the God of the impossible. Here's the question I want us to ask. Why then do we not experience the impossible in our lives? Or, or maybe another way to ask it is, why do we not experience this impossible working of God more often in our lives? If God is a God of the impossible, why do we not see this playing out in our lives? One answer, or maybe the answer, is found in that very difficult passage that Ryan read earlier. Uh, let me just set this up for you. The book of Jeremiah is about a prophet named Jeremiah who lived about 600 years before Christ. When you back up before that, go to about a 1,000 years before Christ, you find that the nation of Israel was one nation. It was one kingdom. Saul was the first king, and then David was the king after Saul, and then David's son Solomon was the king after David, and then after Solomon, sometime in the early 900s B.C., Israel split into two nations, or two different kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom called Israel, and there was the southern kingdom that was called Judah. And in the southern kingdom was located the city of Jerusalem. In the northern kingdom, all the kings who followed Solomon were evil. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They did not follow the Lord. They worshiped other gods. They turned people away from following God. And so God put up with it for about 200 years. Said, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. You got to change. You got to repent. He was patient with them for about 200 years. And finally, he had had enough. And in 721 BC, the Assyrians, this powerful nation, came in and they destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. In the southern kingdom, there were a few kings who followed God. There were a few kings who led the people to follow God. And so God put up with them for a little bit longer, but eventually their kings turned away from God and their people turned away from God. And so in 586 BC, the Babylonians, who by this point had destroyed the Assyrians, came in and they destroyed Judah and they destroyed Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. Jeremiah was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah in the decades leading up to this destruction in 586. And Jeremiah had one message, and it was destruction's coming. Judgment's coming. Repent, or judgment is coming. Repent, or destruction and judgment, the wrath of God is coming. And literally, no one believed him. In fact, he was called the weeping prophet, not just because of his message, but because of the extreme loneliness that he experienced in life. Everyone rejected him. They rejected his message, even his own family members. In fact, even his own own family members rejected him and tried to have him killed. I mean, just no one believed him. They were tired of his message. They were tired of his preaching. Jeremiah, all you preach is judgment. Jeremiah, all you preach is destruction. All you preach is about God's wrath. Can't you preach something positive? Talk about God's love. Can't you talk about something that's hopeful? All you talk about is judgment. And we know that we have sinned. But you know, you're kind of old-fashioned, Jeremiah. I mean... In today's enlightened world, Jeremiah, we think God overlooks our sin. In today's enlightened world, we're just sort of past all of that, Jeremiah. Quit preaching this message. Quit preaching. We're tired of you preaching this message. So you get to Jeremiah 32, and there are a couple of things going on. One is Jeremiah has been put in prison in Jerusalem in the palace, in the courtyard of the palace, by the king, a man named Zedekiah. Because Zedekiah was tired, not just of his preaching in general about destruction, but specifically specifically because Jeremiah was preaching that King Zedekiah would be carried off by the king of Babylon. And Zedekiah did not like that message. He said, quit preaching that message. You know, tell me about how I can have my best life now, but not all this negative stuff. I'm tired of this. And so he took the prophet Jeremiah and he put him in prison. It's the first thing that was happening. Second thing that was going on was that the powerful nation of Babylon had begun to march on Judah and Jerusalem. And by this point, they had taken over Judah and they had surrounded the city Of Jerusalem. And that's what Jeremiah talks about. Look back at verse 1. He said, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, this king who did not like the preaching of Jeremiah, the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the powerful king of the powerful nation of Babylon. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. So Babylon has come, they've taken over Judah, and they're besieging Jerusalem. Here's what that meant. Jerusalem was built high on a hill. Ancient cities were built on hills for defensive purposes. An ancient city always had to have a height advantage and walls around the city to be able to defend itself. And so here's this powerful army. They're marching against Judah. They're marching against Jerusalem. The people in Judah retreat behind the walls of the city of Jerusalem, which is up on this hill called Mount Zion. And they, they lock the gates and they hole up there. And then here comes the army. And the army of Babylon surrounds the city of Jerusalem. And it says they were besieging the city. So what the citizens of Jerusalem hoped was they could um, find protection inside the city walls and just wait out the Babylonians. And they would leave and finally they would get tired and go away. But Babylon was not doing that. And so they began to build siege ramps to attack and overrun the city. And the way they built a siege ramp was they literally had soldiers go and get dirt and rocks and more dirt and more rocks. And they built up the earth right outside the walls. And it would take a long time and they would lose some soldiers along the way, but they would just build up the ground and build up the ground and bring in rocks and more rocks until finally they had a ramp and then they could send those soldiers up that ramp over the walls and they could take the city. Jeremiah is in prison while the powerful army of Babylon has surrounded the city of Jerusalem and the soldiers are bringing in rocks and bringing in dirt and they're building the ramp ready to invade the city. Then this is the point that things get really interesting. Look down at verse 6. Here's what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me, Hanamel son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, by my field at Anatoth, Because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then he said, Then, just as the Lord had said, My cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the garden and said, Buy my field at Anatoth in the territory of Benjamin. Since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. Okay, so according to Old Testament law in Israel and in Judah, If anyone ever sold a piece of property, family members would have the right of first refusal. They couldn't just sell it to anyone. They had to go to extended family members first. Now, property was rarely sold. It was just passed down from generation to generation to generation, from fathers to sons, from fathers to sons and daughters-in-law. And so most of the time, property did not sell. But if it did, they were required to go to family members first. So it would stay within the family. So the property would stay within a a tribe of Israel. They were required to go to these family members first. So Hanamel comes to his cousin, Jeremiah, and says, Hey, cuz, by law, you've got the right of first refusal. Would you like to buy my field? Would you like to buy my property at Anatoth? Anatoth was this little community about three miles to the north of Jerusalem. Kind of this bedroom community or a suburb of Jerusalem. It would have been worth a lot of money because of its location close to the city of Jerusalem. But outside of the hustle and bustle, Hanamel comes to Jeremiah while he's in prison and says, You've got right of first refusal. Do you want to buy my land? Most of the time, this would have been the kind of deal that Jeremiah would have jumped on. This would have been a very valuable piece of property under normal circumstances. But these were not normal circumstances. Anatoth at this point was occupied by the army of Babylon. The city of Jerusalem was surrounded by the army of Babylon. Judah was occupied by the Babylonians, the Babylonians. The city of Jerusalem was holding out, but their destruction was intimate. And in the midst of all of that, Hanamel says, hey, Jeremiah, do you want to buy this land? If Jeremiah had bought the land, signed the deed, then took that deed, went outside of the walls of Jerusalem, went to Anatoth, and said to the commander of the Babylonian army there in that city, hey, this is my land, you got to get off it. The commander would have said, no, it's not. Yeah, it is. Look, I've got the deed. It says I own it. Yeah, if Jerusalem was not about to fall, if Judah was still in your hands, sure, you would own the land. But guess what? We have attacked and destroyed you. We now own the land. You can take that deed and use it to line your birdcage because that's all it's worth. Yet Hanamel, in the midst of this invasion by Babylon, comes to Jeremiah and says, you want to buy this field? What fool would buy a field occupied by a foreign enemy? And why would Hanumel think that Jeremiah would actually purchase this particular field? Here's why. For decades, Jeremiah preached destruction, destruction, destruction. Judgment is coming. Get ready. You need to repent for destruction is coming. God is getting ready to judge and no one believed him. And then here comes Babylon. Suddenly everybody says, well, Jeremiah, it turns out you were right. We now believe you. And in the midst of that, of the army of Babylon coming, Jeremiah says, by the way, I've got another message as well. My other message is this. This judgment is not forever. This destruction is not forever. God has a future and a hope for you. God still loves you as his people. And in the midst of all this chaos that's going on, you need to know this, that God is one day going to bring us back here, that God has a future for our nation. This time he preaches that message and no one believes him. Jeremiah, it's impossible. Look, the army of Babylon is about to destroy us. Look, judgment has come. There is no way that God is going to have anything to do with us in the future and Jeremiah says yes there's still a hope and there's still a future in fact when you back up just a couple of chapters we find the most famous uh, verse in the book of Jeremiah a verse that many of you have memorized before Jeremiah 29 11. here's what it says for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you Plans to give you a hope and a future. Destruction's coming, judgment's coming. The Babylonians are going to invade us, but Jeremiah says, But you need to know this God has not given up on us. And there is a hope and there is a future. And the people said, I don't, I don't know. Jeremiah, how can we believe that? And here comes Hanamel. And Hanamel comes in to Jeremiah and says, Do you really believe that message you're preaching? That one day we'll be back here, that one day that we will buy houses and land again in this place. Do you really believe that message? Jeremiah, if you really believe it, then here's what I want you to do: buy this field. You buy the field, you put your money where your mouth is, and I'll believe this message. So, what does Jeremiah do? This is his test. This is the test of his faith. Does he really believe that God will bring them back here and that that deed to that land will be worth something? Here's what Jeremiah said. I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field. So I bought the field at Anatoth from my cousin Hanamel, which at the time was worth nothing to buy that deed. But then just as Jeremiah said, Years later, against impossible odds, the people of Israel returned to that land. They restored the city of Jerusalem. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, and they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. Why? Because God is the God of the impossible. Years ago, a friend called me and said, hey, I want to talk to you. I've got a couple of things going on in my business, and I just want to see if you've got any wisdom for me. He said, one issue is I've, I've got sort of this disgruntled attitude that's running through my um, workforce right now, my employees. There's just something going on, and, and I've got to figure out a way to, to, to make their work lives better. He said, but the bigger issue is I feel like God is telling me to close my business on Sunday. And I'm in a retail business, and Sunday is my biggest day of the week. And if I close my business on Sunday, it may mean that I might not make it. What do you think? I said, let me tell you a couple of things. One, we don't live under these legalistic rules. It's not a sin to work on Sunday. In fact, I work on Sunday. Many of you think that's the only day I work, but I work on Sunday. (laughs) So it's not a legalistic thing. However, if God is telling you to close on Sunday... I think you need to close your business on Sunday. And he said, yeah, but man, the money. Just think about it. All that money I'm losing. I said, you don't think God's bigger than that? If God's telling you to do this, then you need to take this step of faith and you need to follow what God is telling you to do. So we did. And about a year later, I called him and said, hey, what's going on? Tell me about that. How's your business done since you closed on Sunday? he said, you won't believe this, but my profits are up. My profits are actually the highest they've ever been since I made this decision. And he said, and you know what else? All those issues I was having with my employees, with all these workers who are disgruntled, they love having Sunday off. It gives them a breather during the week. He said, it's been the best decision in the world. I called him this past week and I said, hey, you remember all that that we talked about? You remember when you called me and you wanted wisdom on this thing? And he said, yeah. I said, I'm gonna use that in a sermon this week and I just need to make sure I've got the details right. And I ran through that story and he said, yeah, all that's right. He said, but I need to add one thing to it. He said, when I closed my business, not only did my profits go up, not only did it improve the attitudes of my workers, he said, but you gotta know this, my faith in God skyrocketed because God God proved himself to me When I was willing to take that step, God proved that he is the God of the impossible. There are times in our lives that we feel like that we are inside the city of Jerusalem and the powerful army of Babylon has surrounded us and they're building the siege ramp and the rocks are coming in and the dirt's coming in and the ramp's getting higher and higher and we look out and we look to the future and it looks hopeless. And we feel like there is no way out of this. God is the God of the impossible. And when it seems like there's no way out, God loves to make a way out. So let me go back to my question that I asked earlier. Why is it that we do not see the impossible more in our lives? Why do we not see God working the impossible more in our lives? Here's why I'm convinced. Based on this story, I think there are many times that God is waiting on us to take that step. God is waiting on us to buy that field, to say, God, I believe you in the midst of all that is happening. I believe that you've got this future for me, and I am willing to put feet to that faith. I am willing to put my money where my mouth is, and I will buy that field, believing that you have this hope and that you have this future for me. Maybe for some of you right now, it's your marriage. And and it just seems like the army of Babylon has surrounded your marriage and your life and there's no hope and the rocks and the dirt's coming in, the sea ramp's getting higher and you look out over the horizon and the enemy is all around you and you think there is no hope and you've just given up. Here's what you need to know. God is the God of the impossible. And it may look impossible to you right now, but God is the God of the impossible. And he's wanting you to take a step to buy that field, to make a move in some way to demonstrate your faith. That you believe that he can do the impossible in your marriage. Maybe it's with a coworker. This coworker makes fun of you for going to church every time you try to talk about your faith in front of this coworker. He just belittles you. He ridicules Christians. And in your mind, you've given up on this coworker. And you thought there's just no way. There's no way he'll ever come to church. There's no way she'll ever become a follower of Christ. You have just completely written them off because you have said it is impossible that they will ever accept the gospel. God is the God of the impossible. And maybe God is waiting on you to take that step, to make that invitation, to spend time every day praying for them, believing that God can do the impossible. Maybe for some of you, it's your finances. And right now it feels like the powerful army of Babylon has surrounded your life and surrounded your finances and the enemy is gaining ground and the siege ramp is getting higher and higher and you think there is no way out, there is no hope here, there is no future here, here's what you need to know. God is the God of the impossible. And if you're a follower of Christ, God loves you so much and has a hope and a future for you. And maybe right now he is waiting on you to take that step whatever that is in your life, to take that step of faith towards him so that he can prove to you that he is, in fact, the God of the impossible. I am so incredibly thankful that we serve a God who is the God of the impossible.